is just looking at various encounters with Jesus that different people had throughout the Bible, um, obviously throughout the Gospels, and looking to draw from that lessons that are available today in terms of what we are to expect in terms of encountering Jesus. One of the quite common mistakes I think people make with Jesus is that they caricature him. So what I mean by that is this, is that they will, they will look at the way Jesus is with one person and then say, Jesus is always like that with people. But actually, if you follow the accounts through, you'll find that Jesus does treat different people differently. He really does. And sometimes people find it hard to get their head around that or believe that, and they think that, is that okay? Well, the reason why Jesus treats different people differently is because Jesus searches the heart. He knows the motives. He knows what's going on. And as such, responds appropriately. So, hopefully over these months, as we look at these different encounters with Jesus, it will lead us to a place where we get a nice, rich picture of Jesus, instead of a really narrow little caricature of one element of the way that he is. So I want to set the scene before I read today's scripture. Um, We're we're, we're going to come into um, the message just at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was a Jewish celebration whereby what God had called the people of Israel to do was uh, once a year for eight days was to really recreate little tents, if you like, and to eat in them and sometimes even to live in them over that period. And the reason why was so that they would remember their 40 years in the wilderness as nomads. It was so they wouldn't forget, oh yeah, this is where we've come from. And it's really, it's actually fantastically... Um, insightful, because I think one of the biggest problems with all of us as people is that we forget so quickly, don't we? We can forget where Jesus has brought us from. And the whole idea here is, is that now as they lived in their nice, even cities with settled houses and permanent, permanent fixtures, that actually for eight days of the year they would set up these really unimpressive little tents and would definitely eat in them and sometimes even sleep in them and, and dwell in them over this time. And it was, so it's called the Feast of Booths. And, uh, and Jesus goes along to this feast. You read about that in John chapter 7. And he causes a real stir. He, he begins to, in the last great day of the feast, stand up and make these massive claims about who he is and that eternal life is found in him. And really cause a significant controversy. There were whisperings going around among Jerusalem. Is this really the Messiah? People saying things like, well, the, the leaders haven't arrested him, so maybe they've agreed that this really is the Christ. This really is the Messiah. And, um, but no one really knew for sure, and everyone was kind of too scared to really go out and say it is or it isn't. At the same time, the religious leaders had sent certain officers to try and arrest Jesus. And, then when, and, and the officers came back empty-handed, and the leader said, well, why haven't you arrested him? And their comment was this, no one ever spoke like this man. And so even those that have been sent to arrest him come back uh, empty-handed because they did not know how to apprehend him, and instead were transfixed by his words. And so just at the end of this feast, we're going to pick up in John uh, chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. Now before I read it, I need to just say something about this scripture. There are a, f- a very, very small number of scriptures that, um, as the, uh, that do not appear in all of the ancient manuscripts. So, for instance, I'm to give you some understanding on, on, on the Bible and, and how it works. Basically, what we have in terms of the New Testament are about 14,000 ancient copies, which is an incredible amount of copies for ancient, ancient literature. Um, uh, and the oldest going back to very, very late 4th century. 
Now, when people, scholars who kind of, you know, translate the Bible and various other things, when people decide kind of what gets in and what doesn't, obviously what you're looking for is, um, is for consi- consistency across the board. You're looking, yes, this account is in this, this manuscript here, this one we found here, we found this one miles away and it was in here, and so uh, we definitely know for sure the original author put this bit in. There are a few passages that are questionable. This is one of them. Now what that means is this. It means that they find it in numbers of the more slightly more modern manuscripts, but they don't find it in those that date back a little bit further. And so really they're saying, hmm, maybe someone put this bit in at a later date. So why is it in there? Well, the reason why it's in there is because nothing that it teaches contradicts or says anything different from anything else in the Bible. It's all completely consistent with the Gospel. If there was anything that was a little bit questionable and it said anything that was comp- even slightly different from any of the messages, it would not be included for a moment. So you, there's, there's, uh, there's two passages in the New Testament that come to my mind. This is relevant for, and this is one of them. And so the scholar's advice would be this. When preaching on a passage like this, they would say, this passage should not be used as the basis for building any kind of doctrine unless confirmed in broader scripture. Okay? So what they're saying is this. With these, with these passages that are a little bit, mm, what you mustn't do is just pick something very, very peculiar to it and erect a huge doctrine on it when you can't find it anywhere else in the Bible. So I want to say from the start, everything I preach from this scripture is massively, strongly, richly confirmed uh, across the scriptures and I'll show you that as I preach it. But I wanted to just let you in on that out of integrity's sake so you're aware of, of where I'm coming from. Is that okay? If you want to talk about Bible translations and reliability of scripture later, one-on-one, please approach me. I'm really happy to talk with you about that. Okay, we're going to read to John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. It's going to come up. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and rubbed his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and rubbed on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This message is called, No More. The first thing I want to look at is the motivation in the heart of these leaders that brought this woman to Jesus. You see two encounters with Jesus here. The Pharisees and scribes, who seems pretty much dragged the woman there, and then the woman's encounter with Jesus. We're going to spend a bit of time on the Pharisees and scribes first of all. Point number one, test no more. We're told they came to test Jesus. They didn't come because they wanted to see justice done, or they, did, or, or they wanted to see a marriage restored. That was nothing to do with it. They came to test Jesus because they wanted to trap him. They wanted to trip him up one way or another. Jesus blanks them. That's what he does. Jesus blanks some people. Have you ever been told that? <laughs> Have you ever said that to people you've been reaching out to? Yeah, Jesus might blank you. 
It likes it blanks so much, it blanks Herod. You know, when Jesus is standing before Herod being questioned, blanks him, does not answer him at all. Just blanks him. The only time he speaks to Herod, he speaks to Herod indirectly. When Herod's getting freaked out because Herod's orchestrated the death of John the Baptist, then he hears what Jesus is doing and he thinks John the Baptist has come back from the dead and he wants to find out a bit more about Jesus and sends messengers. This is what Jesus said. This is the message Jesus has for Herod. Go and tell that fox, and the fox there is feminine, it's vixen. Alright, go and tell that vixen. <laughs> Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. That's all we have to say to him. When he's face to face with him, he explains him. The heart of these men was to test Jesus. If your heart is to test Jesus, you may well blame him. If your heart is to get Jesus to prove himself to you because you deserve this, that, or the other, you may be finding a kind of stony silence coming from heaven. Because that's not how it works. If you exalt yourself to the point where you begin demanding from the king, they need to come to you on your terms and fix this and fix that, and why didn't you do that, and how on earth could you do this? You may find that, the, that actually the silence is deafening. Because Jesus himself said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Luke chapter 18. Verse 14. Even Jesus himself, when Satan tested him, Satan tempted him, jump from this, jump from this rooftop. Because the Bible says it's written that if you do so, he will command his angels concerning you, and you won't hurt your foot against the you won't even hurt your foot against the stone. What did Jesus say? It is also written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus wouldn't test the Father, and Jesus won't be tested. It's a satanic thing when we get into trying to test. Jesus. It does never ever fruitful. It's a weird kind of role reversal where the Lord has to prove himself. So first of all, test no more. And then, secondly, for these scribes and Pharisees, condemn no more. Condemn no more. Now what does Moses' law teach? Does Moses' law teach that if a woman is called adultery, she should be stoned to death? Yes. Also teaches the man should be. It's funny, isn't it, how the scribes and Pharisees seem to overlook? They caught her in the act. So, I mean, you haven't got to be a rocket scientist to work out the guy must have been there. <laughs> Where's the man? Oh, don't worry about that. Get the wicked woman. Yes, Moses' Lord does teach that, but very, very incomplete. You'll find that those teachings in Leviticus 20, verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, verse 23. So Jesus doesn't question their interpretation of the law. Um, what he wants to know is, have they kept the law or not? He doesn't question whether the woman's wrong or right. Or, you know, he doesn't say, oh no, poor thing, she's fine. He doesn't do that. He questions whether, yeah, okay, so she's broken the law. Uh, but have you broken the law? Or have you kept the law? Jesus doesn't say that she doesn't deserve death. What he does say is, what about you? You see, we often want to know what Jesus says about other people, don't we? We often, what does Jesus say about them? What's, what's Jesus going to do about them? And Jesus says, what about you? So we say, what about, you know, what about the indigenous tribes? They've never heard about Jesus. What's Jesus going to do with them? They've never heard about Jesus. Uh, poor guys, you know, what's Jesus going to do to them? What about you who has heard about Jesus? What are you going to do he always brings it back to you because Jesus can deal with the indigenous tribes that have never heard about him. He is wise, merciful, holy, glorious and wonderful enough to know exactly what to do. 
And so he doesn't want you distracted over there with that kind of sort of hypothetical thing. He wants to say, well, what are you going to do about it? He always brings it back that way. If you want to focus on other people, especially if you want to focus on other people's sins and failures, he may well expose you. You see, through Jesus' statement, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her is incredible. It's an incredible statement. Because what he does is he upholds the law, the standard is upheld perfectly, but you only, he says you only really get to punish the sinner if you're without sin. You only get to punish the sinner if you yourself is without sin. In fact, Jesus is the only one there qualified to pick up a stone. Only Jesus at that point could have picked up a stone and righteously fulfilled the law in that sense. And so Jesus says that him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And I wouldn't even have to bring him this moment. Right? He says it, and then he just bends down and carries on writing. And then there's this. Suddenly the spotlight is shone on them. And off they go one by one, beginning with the beginning with the eldest. Now why is that? Here's why it is, I think. I think it's that the older you get. The more time you have to make such horrendous mistakes and be such an idiot and, so, um, and prove yourself to be far more of a sinner than you ever thought you were, that you, 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 you get humble. You get humble, you know. I mean, I'm one of the old guys in the church here because we're always so darn young. And, you know, my own journey, some of them look back at... God allowing me to plant this church and lead it five or six years ago, I think, God, if I was you, I wouldn't have done it. I would not have let, I would not have let me do it. I've been humbled over the years, you know. And I know it's got a lot more to do, but boy, you, if, you, if you walk with Christ, he, he just shows you yourself. And man, do you appreciate the gospel more. Thank you that this is all of you. Thank you that this thing is about your righteousness being given to me as a gift. Because if it, was, if it was about my righteousness getting myself to heaven, it would be an absolute disaster. And you really get it. And I think this is why the oldest ones went first. They suddenly look back and thought in their own life, and it's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I did that, oh I said that. And they go out, and they're left with that. And the youngest, proudest, most zealous ones are still there, right to the end, and then the conviction just grows and grows and grows, and they see their spiritual hero there walking out, and that spiritual hero there walking out, and then suddenly they realise, oh man. And Jesus looks up, and there's no one there, except the woman. It's an incredible moment. Meeting Jesus will deal with your pride. You need to know that. Meeting Jesus will deal with your pride. Does anyone you despise... If there's anyone you look down on, if there's anyone you condemn, Jesus will say this to you. If you're without sin, throw the first stone. Fine. You want to get annoyed about that person or that kind of person or this type or this group? Fine. You get on your high horse about them. But just, just if you're throwing spiritual stones, if in your mind you're thinking what you wouldn't do to them and what they deserve, this, that and the other, and you're not physically throwing stones, but you're, you're good enough, you're, you're launching all kinds of accusations and things about this, that and the other, this person, your boss, whatever. Jesus says, that's fine, you keep throwing those stones as long as you're without sin. Paul says this, 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
That's a Christian saying. It wasn't just Paul saying it because he was really bad before. It, it was a saying that Paul had adopted for himself, but it was a Christian saying. If you're a Christian, this is maybe one test of being the true Christian, if you're able to stand up and say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That you know in your heart the corruption. You know in your heart the stuff is there. It's a very important test of true Christianity. You are able to say the foremost. Condemn no more. When you meet with Jesus, no more testing. No more condemning others. And then we have this amazing moment where suddenly the adulteress and the Son of God are alone face to face. Put yourself in her shoes. Jesus has just seen off the spiritual heavyweights and now it's just you and him. You think, oh boy, now I'm really going to get it. Fear no more. It's a beautiful conversation. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one not. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Fear no more. So many people think if they bring their sin to Jesus, they're going to get slammed. They're going to get judged. They're going to get beaten up spiritually. It's not what happens. It's actually not what happens. Maybe you think that's going to happen because that's what you do to other people in your mind. And so the measure you use is kind of being measured out to you in your thinking. But when you take your stand before Jesus like this woman with nothing to hide, no defence. Oh, but Jesus, you don't understand. It was like this. It was like that. Oh, oh no, but Jesus, if you've been there, the man misled me. None of that. She just stands there. She knows she's been found out. Busted. It's a busted moment. No defence. No 101 reasons why I did this or that. No, it wasn't my fault. No passing the And look at the way Jesus deals with that. This is really important. What these scribes and Pharisees have done in terms of bringing it to Jesus, it's a bit of a picture of what the law does. The law, tell, the law tells us God's standard, and, and the whole idea is that in doing so, we get to a point where we finally, hopefully, get to Jesus, where we say, this is a nightmare. Your law is perfect, but I either don't want to do it, or when I try and do it, I mess it up, and it's just becoming more and more like this horrendous thing whereby I'm seeing myself for what I am, I need, this isn't going to work. I actually just need mercy. I actually need grace. I need to be rescued. When you cry out like that, the law has done its job. It's brought you to Jesus. That's how it works. The law should bring you to Christ. Listen to Galatians Galatians 3, 24, 25. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified, that's made right with God, by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. The law's done its job. It's brought us to Jesus. It exposes us. We get exposed. Look at so, so many of us are familiar with the law these days. I'm just going to read you the Ten Commandments, okay? And just, just this is the law of God, and uh, round it up as, uh, in a nutshell. Number one, you should have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that's in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
The shaman steadfast after thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the seal that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Number five, honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. Number ten, you shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbour's. And let's, let's just drill down on number, number eight, you shall not commit adultery. Because you may be sitting there thinking, well, actually, I'm not married, or I've never slept with a person who's not been my husband or my wife. But listen to the way Jesus interprets even this commandment here. Jesus says this, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, God gets to the motive, to the heart of the thing. This is God's law. This is God's standard. If in your heart you've glanced with your eyes and you've gone there, you've gone there in your imagination, lustfully, over someone who may well be someone else's husband or wife, or definitely someone's son or daughter, You've gone there on the internet or whatever. It's, it's breaking this command, emotional adultery. You can be you can be married to someone and yet in your heart it might even be a sexual thing, but you begin to gravitate towards someone else and you want to spend a bit more time with them and you just there's a connection there and you begin to grow distant in your heart to your spouse and, the, and an attachment forms with someone else's spouse or a single person. Emotional adultery can happen. Happens all the time. Friendship can go can, can go funny or go wrong or it can just develop into something else. This stuff happens. It's the law. It's just, the idea of this is that you don't come to a point where you beat adultery by your amazing self-control. But where you actually look and you think, God have mercy on me. This is horrific. Because all those things... I find them in there. I'm a lawbreaker. So the word sinner really is in Titan's a lawbreaker. So that's what happens, you see. It shows us that we've fallen, that we're morally bankrupt, that we have no bargaining power with God. Whether you go to church seven times a week, or this prayer meeting, and that Bible study, none of it. It's all, the, the Bible says, our good works are like filthy rags. They're meaningless in terms of making us right with God. It brings us face to face. With Jesus, the sinless one. And what does he do? Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Grace! What a word. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. And yet so many sing it, but don't understand it. They still think they're bringing something to the table. Listen to what Paul says. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If actually deep down, really, I think I'm like a God because I live a really good life. I do really good things. I don't do lots of bad stuff. You've nullified the gospel. Christ died in vain. Jesus Christ was crucified. Why? Because we are helpless. The uncondemnable was condemned that the condemnable might be released from condemnation and might be made right with God as a gift. Hallelujah. 
that's the good news. That's what we're talking about. We come in for the accomplishment of God. He has done it for us. Grace. Neither do I condemn you. Fear no more. Hallelujah. Tell me what. And then finally. Sin no more. Go your way. Sin no more. Holiness. Grace. If you get grace, it will release you into holiness. If you get it, it will, it will propel you into living a radically holy life. It really, if you understand, I am off the hook. Oh, I'm right with God. Oh, I, it's all good with God. Man, he, he's delighting over me. Wow. He's singing songs over me. What about I hadn't done anything? No, 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 no. He's singing songs over you. You've got to get this. When Daisy was first born, we just, she didn't do anything, for goodness sake. We just sang songs over her. We just walked around singing over her. I wasn't saying, we wasn't, I wasn't saying to me, well, she doesn't do anything. This what was this all about? No washing up, just piling up. I didn't do that. It's crazy. He walked around singing songs over her. And no one came along and said, well, look at them, they're just singing over her. You shouldn't have done anything. No one said that. Why not? Because I knew. Well, you, you've been born into a family. You're delighted over. You're born again. You've been born into God's family. You're delighted over. He sings songs over you. He carries you around. He carries you around and sings songs over you. It's the heart of God. It's the, this is it. You know, the Bible talks about being uh, smothered with kisses. This is it. This is where it starts. Imagine if, like, you know, I don't know, Daisy come out and I'd be like, right, you've got to know the rules, kid. You've got to know. Look, 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 we're gonna go through, I know you can't read it, but we're going to go through some stuff. In this house, we don't do that. In this house, we do it this way. Can you imagine? So many churches are like that. So much Christianity. You, you meet people and they're just ruined. They've been ruined. Uh, Jesus saved them, but there was no celebration. There was no party. There was no being allowed to be carried around and heard God sing songs. None of that. It's straight to, you know, expectation to the man alive. Horrific. What? I mean, if you brought up a kid like that, what would they be like? And they wouldn't be around for long. They wouldn't be around for long. Or if they did stay around for long, they would be so crushed. There would be no colour. There would be no life. There would be nothing. You've got to hear the songs of the Lord in your heart, over you. You sing out of that. Amen. You sing out of that. It's the grace of God. He's done it. It's really okay. Again, and if you try and bring something, it's an insult. He's done it. Imagine what's the show? We're going to do a massive birthday party. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be so non-Christian, it won't be bring and share. Okay? It's going to be amazing. We're actually going to get every... You know, Christians will bring and share. They're crazy. Right? So he said, we're going to do it all. It's going to be at the Ritz. It's going to be... We've got Jamie Oliver doing the cooking. It's going to be amazing. Oh, wow. And then you turn up with a quiche. Can you imagine? What are you doing? You haven't got it, have you? Well, you know, just in case. Just in case. I've got Jamie Oliver cooking. It's the Ritz. What is this? actually shows me that you actually deep in your heart don't think that we've got enough going on. In your heart you were thinking, yeah, you know, there might not be enough. Or it might not be quite, or this, or that. It shows lack of trust. It shows lack of confidence. You do that around the gospel, it's an insult. He's done it. He's done it when you were a sinner, when you were miles away. He did it. He invites you to the party. Fear no more. 
Sin no more. Grace, then holiness. Not holiness, then grace. I've got to finish that again and again and again. It's not holiness, then grace. If I then straighten this out and sort that out and stop doing that, then I get the favour of God. No! He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He favoured you then. He favoured you. You hadn't done anything. He favoured you then. It's not holiness, then grace. Do this, don't do that, sort that out. Then I get the favour of God, the blessing of God. No, 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 no. He favoured you. That's why you're in Christ. The reason why you're here and you love him is because he, in his favour, has revealed himself to you. Grace first. Releases you to holiness. Wow, we've got to get this. We've really, really got to get this. Likewise, don't pit grace against holiness. I'm in a grace game. I don't worry about all that. All that stuff. All that don't, don't, do's and don'ts. I'm, I'm into grace. Nonsense. Or... Mm, no, 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 great stuff. Oh, no, oh, a little bit too free. Mm, a bit too happy. No, I'm happier with none. What I should do and what I shouldn't do. No. I receive the grace of God. Out of that, I get a brand new heart on which I inscribe the laws of God. It's no longer an external thing over me with this wicked heart thinking, ah, the laws of God are now written into this new heart. My heart beats for the sun alone, as we sang earlier. I just want to love him and honor him. Why? I've been born again. I want to please Jesus. I want to honour Jesus. It's this new life he's put in. That will produce true holiness, not just trying not to do this, especially if the pastor's looking and all that nonsense. I mean, blimey, that's, that, if, you, if we create a church like that, oh, oh look, Stephen Simon's about, quick. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's rubbish. Kill it. It's just horrific. All you get to leave us in churches is a load of secret sin. That's all you get, just lower the secrets and everyone looks holy. You know, but it's all going on at the weekend, it's all going on secretly. Nonsense, utter rubbish. True holiness. Just love Jesus. And so you learn to hate what he hates and love what he loves because you love him. That's transformation. No one's got to be breathing down it, telling you, making sure, oh, you know, you love Jesus. Now, of course, we encourage each other and all of that. That's God's provision for us. But the heart of it is, I want to please Jesus. So, we live radical lives, and it leads to a sin-no-more trajectory. Now, we all stumble in many ways, we make mistakes on the road to maturity, but listen, it is a sin-no-more. The word over from Jesus is sin-no-more. It is. It's a radical message. If anyone says it isn't, they're misrepresenting Jesus. Go your way, sin-no-more. That's the message. Stop hating sin. Learn to throw it off so you can run your race. All the Bible talk, crucify the flesh hate the world, all that stuff, absolutely sin no more. That's where, we're, that's where this thing is going. Birthed in grace. Birthed in the unmerited favour of God. Birthed in the fact that I can hear the songs of God over my life. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm worn out. It's going to be so darn hot. I, I, love, I just want to say sorry to any guests for coming in this room. It is an oven. and We can't do anything about it. I'm really sorry. Especially show like you're a hero. She comes in. She's 15 months pregnant now. She still comes every year. So praise God. We're going to uh, we're going to respond to the gospel. Um, for those of you medical people that are worried now, she's not really. She's not really 15 months pregnant. That that, that wouldn't be right. Um, if you're on a partial team, like what time is it? About seven o'clock. 
If you fill the pastor's name, we want to help people encounter Jesus today, right? Yeah. Some of you need to hear, some of you need to hear, um, test no more. You've been testing him, and you've got to stop it, because he's blanking you. Right? You've got to repent of it and say, Jesus, I'm going to stop thinking this is on you. If you did it this way, da, da, da. I'm going to stop all of that, and I'm going to just submit to you and trust you because you're the Lord. Yeah? Some of you, you, it's condemned no more. You've been, in, you've been in the trap of judging others and having a harsh attitude towards other people. Some of you have been speaking out of the Holy Spirit, showing me judging your spouses. It's so easy to judge your spouse. Is that right, David? <laughs> <laughs> I've been the guilty one. Very, very gracious. It's so easy. It's so easy. Because, you know, you see each other so and the Lord wants to speak to somebody about it today. Condemn no more. Fear no more. So you just got to get into the presence of God. Like that woman and say, busted. Maybe for the first time, I'm a sinner. I need to think of this and He'll, he'll say to you, I don't condemn you. He won't throw stones at you. I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. If he died for you, and rose again for you, don't you think he will embrace you? Fear not. And sin him. That means he's given way too much room to that whole thing. You know, you know he's saying, I'm in the grace camp, and it's like grace and holiness. You know, 